where it allows you to take such risk. Right? And the downside isn't as bad as it is in other places. Like you don't want to go bankrupt in Germany. You can go bankrupt in the US. It's all good. Se um, several times, man, you can go bankrupt in the yeah, US. Exactly. So and become president. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> This podcast contains the arguably witty banter of two friends, Skippy and Dougals, that like to debate about investing. The content is intended to be entertaining and for informational purposes only, not investment advice. You should do your own research and consult a financial professional before using any of the information in this podcast, and especially before investing. Oh, you know, you know, actually, what, I forgot what I wanted to start with. Uh, I was going to start by playing that Boys to Men song yesterday. What, for some, why some are we playing Boys to Men on the pod? <laughs> Well, why haven't we so far? Is is the is the real question? Point. Do you know the dance moves or what? I say to what we have. The good time. You know why I'm starting with voice to men? Just to be soulful on this uh, Monday morning. I, I I do enjoy being soulful, uh, and we haven't had nearly enough boys to men on the pod. Yeah, but it's really because uh, selling time, man. Beginning of the year, rebalancing, and there there are some some gems that have treated treated in some cases me very well all the way to the end, and then some that have treated me well and then treated me real bad. We we know who that is. We you know who you are over there in China. <laughs> Tall um, education group and supreme leader of China. Yeah, exactly. Um, oh, you got to get me fired up because I still think it's crazy that you you uh, frame your portfolio rebalance around the end of the year. That's what everyone else does. It to me, uh, that's the time to avoid. But yeah, I'm excited. Uh, I I'm working on the portfolio review for the year, and uh, I'll have that up in the next uh, few days. It's really it's really fun to look back and kind of look forward to the same time. It is. It really is. And uh, and you you always you always give me a hard time. You always give me a hard time because of the frequency of uh, of checking the portfolios that I do. And I don't recommend that anyone else does that. But it it is super helpful for me because when you look at you look at the end of the year, like if you just look at the annual result, it hides so much of what occurred, which is great emotionally, but intellectually, like I need I need to understand all those ins and outs. Yep. Um, yep. And I felt them. You know, it's been whoo. What a year! What a year! What a Listen, man, couple years. You do you. I'm not criticizing you. This is this goes right to what I'm so excited about for next week, and one thing I wanted to share with the listeners, though. So um, we're trying something new based on feedback we've got, and the the favorite conversation I get to have with Dougals each year is when we're both looking at portfolio rebalance time, which is uh, this time of year. So we're gonna record a massive episode next week. And we're going to keep it. It's not going to uh, roll down to your iTunes as normally. It's a, a premium subscription uh, for those who are interested in the portfolio deep dive. So the way we're going to do that, guys, is if you go to skippydougals.supercast.com and select the I roll with Skippy and Dougals premium membership, the podcast I re record next week, which is our year end review portfolio performance breakdown, everything else. And then the stocks that we are buying right now, again, we don't provide investment advice on the show, but we do provide research recommendations. If you have interest in that, and we've heard people have interest in that, 
head over to skippydiggles.supercast.com and you're able to subscribe. And then that would hit the airwaves next week for those premium subscribers. I'm excited about that. I love getting deep down and dirty with you. Yeah, man. I have some stuff hitting the screen that is going to terrify you, Doogles. Like, just (laughs) (laughs) so dirt cheap. So, um, you know, the story is so ugly. Nothing exciting about these stocks other than the fact that you make money with them. And uh, I I can't wait. It's going to be so much fun. So equally, equally, the stuff I've got hitting is going to terrify you. You got, yeah, I, got, I got, I got PE ratios coming out the hoozy with some of these. Oh my goodness. It's, it's glorious. It's going to be glorious. That's also when, you know, we, we've joked a lot about the Diggles indicator and, and I think the Diggles indicator is hogwash, but that's when we're going to reveal what happened with the Diggles in, indicator this year to see if Diggles quantitative method thinks we're in bubble territory or not. All right. Looking forward to it for this so week man, though. Yeah, this go week. for it. You ever seen the movie Gran Torino? Uh, no. All right. If you, if you want to, go watch it. You don't have to, though. You don't have to. What's important about that is I'm sure you've heard the quote, get off my lawn, right? Oh, yeah. It's That's the, Clint Eastwood, right? Yeah. It's like the, the quintessential like uh, older white man, right? That's just grumpy and just exuding grump upon the world, right? So... This, I actually, the, the two people I'm about to mention, I've got respect for, for various reasons. However, their feud right now just gets me pulling out popcorn because it, it, it makes me, it just makes me like wonder, one, you don't have maybe that long left on this earth. Why spend it angry, right, is one thing. And two is, I didn't realize how much they looked alike until I saw their pictures next to one another. So here's what's going on. Berkshire Hathaway owns Precision Cast Parts. Berkshire, they bought it outright a few years ago. There are steel workers that work for that organization that are either threatening to or are currently going on strike. I'm not sure which. Bernie Sanders is the, the like, uh, person that stands for labor, right? Always wants um, the, the worker to be taken care of. And so Bernie's saying- In his saying, mind. Yeah, in, in his mind, in his mind, from his yeah. perspective, in his mind. And so Bernie's saying, Warren- I'm down to come out and I want to, I want to, I want to help. I want to help you get what's best for your workers. And, and however, I don't know how quickly he can pull his arm up, but from what I picture, Buffett is basically <laughs> pulling his arm up and giving the stiff arm, like, like straight Heisman to Bernie and saying, no, thank you. So this spat is just going back and forth on all the news, the news articles. And it just has their pictures next to each other. And I gave a quiz to my wife. I was like, which one's Bernie, which one's Buffett? Right, because it's it's difficult. Or which one's over Redenbach? Um, it's a, it's like a whole thing. Which, anyway, <laughs> I, I've got respect. Like Kentucky Fried Chicken Colonel. Yeah, exactly. Like. Exactly. I've got respect for both of them. So this is not like and throw shade, but I was just like I just didn't. Anyway, it's it's a it's humorous. I only bring it up for the humor of it. Uh, mad love for both of you and what you've done over your careers, and like, <laughs> take a look at some of these pictures. Well, listen, I love stories about grumpy old men. So this is right in my wheelhouse. The crazy thing here, if you're bringing up Bernie Sanders and labor laws or tax laws or whatever, is a couple of weeks back when him and Musk were going at each other. And he was criticizing Musk for not paying taxes when really Musk has paid more taxes this year than any human in the history of Earth. Like, I don't understand how he got his, his talking points got confused and his talking points were like, 
100% incorrect based on my understanding of the law. Anyway, yeah, he he is fighting for what he thinks is right, and I respect that. But, man, I don't think he's had a great couple of months here. Oh, my goodness. All right, check out the picks. We, we shall tweet forth them. Maybe we can turn that into a quiz for the listeners of, like, two pictures of Bernie and two pictures of Buffett and let's see if they can place them in order and figure out who's who. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, that's so... Oh, there it is. All right. Dig into your your new shiny New Year fishbowl. Well, so I mentioned that I was going to read this uh, last week and the book showed up. I devoured it. It's like 200 pages. I mean, read it in a day or two. It's just awesome. So uh, I had, you know, I always say life is about expectations and maybe just the fact that I had pretty reasonable expectations on this or why I liked it so much. But there's a book called Pop why bubbles are great for the economy by Daniel Gross that I really enjoyed. So originally published in 2007 Diggles. And this is one of those cases where I know you're a history guy and like fan of the hardcore history podcast and everything else, the history that's built into this, but also the perspective of being written in 2007 just really felt like it was appropriate and important to read right now. I'm going to dig in myself. Uh, Cause I do, I do love that kind of thing. And your recommendation gets me all fired up about it. So I'm right now I have to get through uh, what I'm reading right now, which is a, an incredibly, everyone will be excited about this. Uh, it's a, it's a book about John Maynard Keynes, the economist, right. Called the price of peace. Uh, that's what I'm, I'm reading right now. So once I get through that, then I can hop over to pop uh, and see what's going Ooh. on there. Yeah. Well, we might have to switch books because that sounds pretty good. I know you were joking when you said everyone would be interested in that, but I'm interested in that. Listen, I like my boy, John Manning Keynes. So let me hit you with a few facts from this um, that just boggle the mind. So he basically has a few different bubbles that he breaks down and shows kind of how they pop and then the ramifications. In this case, he focuses on the positive ramifications of those. So talks about the telegraph, railroads, basically the Great Recession, the New Deal, the financial infrastructure that is built in the 30s that enable prosperity from a, a kind of investing in finance perspective from the 30s on, which is really fascinating. Um, and he talks about the broadband bubble as well. Just, just really well done, really easy to read, in my opinion. Um, so first bubble he looks at is the telegraph, right? And from 1860, or sorry, 1846 to 1852, the amount of miles that were laid to basically telegraph lines increased tenfold. So that's the heart of a bubble, right? There's just people throwing throwing money at this. They talk about it. Uh, What happens is these are all financed locally, or not all, but large majority of finance locally. So the number of miles that have access to telegraph goes from 2000 to 23000 and that creates excess capacity which causes prices to plummet they used to charge as much as like a dollar a word to transmit a telegraph between like washington dc and baltimore or washington dc and new york and then all the basically finance agreements that were put in place with these small investors that financed the new telegraph line went bust because they did they thought they were going to be able to charge a dollar a word and it turns out they could charge a penny a word you know in in a few short years because of the excess capacity um so that's how big conglomerates like western union 
and the Associated Press end up basically taking over these lines, standardizing these lines. And that changes American history. Like Western Union is still around. Western Union became a way that you could wire money from place to place because of the infrastructure that was built around the telegraph. Uh, the AP news source started and gained a foothold because they could uh, transmit news from place to place via the telegraph. And they took ownership of a lot of, a lot of those lines. Yeah, I find this stuff to be so, so fascinating. And have you read Americana? I haven't. I recommend you go and read that too, because it, it's not, it's not about bubbles per se, but it basically goes back like 400 years and walks through from an economic lens, like the major uh, inventions or at least inflection points that occurred and how that, that then led to whatever the next thing was. And it strings together like economics in, in just a really like a pretty like easy and digestible way. I think at least I don't know, for me, easy and digestible. Some others might, I might disagree with that, but I'd recommend that book too. That's a fascinating time. Uh, and also something that happened around that time that's related is the founding of American Express and Wells Fargo, um, which is quite interesting that they were they were founded by the same people. Um, but uh, basically, uh, American Express was an East Coast thing. And then Wells Fargo was a West Coast thing. Um, and that's all it was. But the same people during yeah. that same time period, yeah, started both those organizations, which are enduring today. That's crazy. Yeah, so I'll try not to get into too many rabbit holes because I want to let people read it. But next bubble he talks about is the railroads. Um, basically, they get overbuilt around the 1880s. And by 1893, one fourth of all the railroad, railroad miles are in bankruptcy. So then, familiar story, consolidation happens. And basically, millionaires and billionaires are made. Man, that's JP Morgan, that's Vanderbilt, that's Rockefeller. They're all playing a role in being smart about how the railroads get consolidated and managed. And when that railroad infrastructure is in place and like ready to take off, here's some of the names that dominate because of the way that changed the American economy. Montgomery Ward, Sears, Campbell's Soup, Post Grape Nuts, Heinz, Pillsbury Flour, Anheuser-Busch, Coca-Cola, uh, Procter and Gamble's Ivory Soap. I mean, this is the late 1800s Stugles. And again, I know you're a history guy, but all those companies found a way to navigate that time to say, you know what, we're, we actually are going to market our soda or our soap nationwide and use railroad infrastructure uh, to ship it from place to place. And they took dominant folds because of it. I got to go read this. Why are we still talking? Why am I not reading? Oh, yeah. Good point. So th this is the same time where uh, Texas beef becomes a nationwide thing and California citrus fruits and all these, you know, all these companies start to take advantage. The first refrigerated rail car comes out in the 1870s and people figured out how to use it. And then you could be sitting in somewhere in Kansas and be sh sip shipping your corn elsewhere, but also be having uh, your fresh strawberries show up. Just just really fascinating stuff. So here's the last thing I want to touch on. He speculates that maybe bubbles are a uniquely American thing in terms of <laughs> we do it better or worse, depending on your perspective, than the rest of the world. And so what that means is, hey, when the dot-com bubble bursts here, we feel more pain because we went more overboard. We had more exuberance. And when we drank from the fire hose, maybe in a way that's not good initially, 
But then after the dot-com bubble bursts and YouTube shows up and Google shows up and we have this excess broadband capacity to take uh, charge of, that turns into a really good thing. And that's maybe the reason why America still leads the world um, when you talk about software and technology companies. It really fascinating thought experiment there that I can't figure out what the right side is, but I love that he brought it up. We're a country of extremes. That's the, I, I think, you know, this and otherwise, I'd say even like social extremes, financial extremes, I, I can get, it's hard to say whether it's a, it's a good thing or a bad thing, the bubble piece, but it is in, a, at least from my understanding of how different countries operate uniquely American, that we go to yep. such extremes and we set up a system that can go to such extremes. Um, uh, yeah. I mean, it's, it, you can even go back to uh, the way that bankruptcy is organized in this country versus other places where it allows you to take such risk. Right? And the downside isn't as bad as it is in other places. Like you don't want to go bankrupt in Germany, right? You can go bankrupt in the U S it's all good. Se um, several times, man, you can go bankrupt. In the yeah, US. Exactly. So, and become president, you know, what I mean? <laughs> like, that's it. So there it is. So what's the Tesla stock of the 1920s? Any guesses, Douglas? Ooh, uh, I think I actually know this, but but I won't take up the, the listener's time. What is it? One of the ones he highlights is RCA. So in 1921, okay, yes. it was uh, 1.5 per share. Uh, in 1925, it was almost 78. And in 1928, it was 420, right? Crazy, crazy growth. Uh, what happens in 1929, we all know, but... Here's, here's the pop he details in a way that um, I hadn't thought about in a while. So the weekly wage fell from $25 to basically $17 between 1929 and 1932. National income fell from like 90 billion to 40 billion in that same period. Unemployment went to 25%. The steel industry state traded or produced 12% of its total capacity in 1932. And I talked about Montgomery Ward earlier, right? They went from $138 a share to four. Wicked. It's craziness. Wicked. All right. Enough on that. What's in your fishbowl? All right. I'm going to dive in and uh, talk about in one of the, the stocks that I hold in my portfolio, not investment advice, just like everything isn't. But I want to I want to talk about this because I think it's a fascinating conversation. What's underlying a piece of this is a fascinating conversation. So this stock is Dexcom. We've mentioned it before here on the pod. It's a significant part of my holdings. Here's the context I want to give to frame this conversation. Context is at its height this year, Dexcom was up roughly 80%. Nice gain, right, for the year. This was mid-November. Hey, that's ended, more than nice, Dougals. That's exceptional. You know, I mean, I'm, you know, I just, I don't want to toot my horn too loud. You know what I mean? <laughs> then the, where it ends though, the year, is in the 40s, 40 something percent, which is still a good year, right? I'm I'm not gonna I'm not gonna fret. And this is this gets back to what we talked about earlier around uh, you, when you see the end of the year, there are things that that can potentially be missed. And I think that this is a it's an interesting little semi quasi deep dive that I did based on this one because there were other stocks that also got hit during that period, right? It's not unique. We've hit on that uh, on the pod as to some of the meme stocks and you know some of the the really high flyers. When, what was really interesting to me with Dexcom is when it would get hit, it would be a day where there was nothing going on, like no news on the company, 
um, the market wasn't necessarily like any sort of a free fall and it would drop like seven, eight percent that day with and nothing. It was nothing. And so I was like, there's where after this had happened a few times, I just I kind of was thinking I was like, there's something that's happening here that I, you can't see with the naked eye, like something is going on. Right. Obviously, um, with this stock. And as I started digging into it, I'm going to throw out a couple a couple factoids and I'd love to get your your perspective and maybe your experience, you know, with something like this. So one thing I hadn't realized with Dexcom is it has a very, 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 that's three, I'm going to throw another one in, four varies, high percentage of its shares that are held by institutions. So that's one thing I hadn't realized. When I say very, 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 I'm talking like 98% according to Yahoo Finance. So then I was looking at, uh, and when I, let me give a couple other facts so you can get a sense. So the number one share. Wait, did you next, say 98%? 98%. The, wow. the other, this, according to Yahoo Finance. So the, the number one shareholder, um, again, this is all according to Yahoo Finance, is Vanguard, which owns a little over 10% of the stock. Then you've got BlackRock, which owns about 8% of the stock. And then you know you got the others, JP Morgan and Fidelity and State Street, right, et cetera, that own a whole bunch. So then I was looking at, I started just clicking around, digging in deeper. What's the market cap on Dexcom? um, I don't know off the top of my my head here. Yeah, this Um, is an interesting one. I might dig into because I've never, I'm not aware of a ratio that high. It's really high. And so, yeah, that's, it's not concerning to me, but it makes me wonder what dynamics are going on that has it at that level, because then you're at the mercy of those institutions um, because there should be more retail float than that. Yeah. Yeah. 52 billion market cap, 52 billion right now. Yeah. And that's, that was, so I, I hadn't realized this. And to your point, when, when you think about uh, news hitting, right. And then something may be occurring there, there, it, there could be a large number of both institutional, but also retail, right. Reaction here. But when it's 98% that's held by institutions, there could be so many reasons why the stock could, it could just be like a necessary contractual rebalancing right there's like so much that could be exactly yeah um and so so i saw that and i was like okay let me click a little deeper and then as i i looked at the institutional buying and selling by quarter of the stock in q4 so actually let me build up so if you go q1 through q3 of 2021 there was anywhere between like two to four billion dollars of inflow um for dexcom q4 almost seven billion dollars of outflow from Dexcom. Why? I don't know. But it yeah. was just, it was really, it's just so, it was really interesting for me because I hadn't, one, I don't usually look at that percentage. Like that's not one of the, the fundamentals, even when I look at fundamentals of stocks that I actually look yeah. at. So I hadn't paid attention, but I was so curious as to how this was happening when like nothing else was, nothing else seemed to be leading to it that I dug in a little bit and thought that was interesting finding. All the dynamics you're talking about behind the scenes are why I say the short-term movement of stocks is a coin flip. Because sometimes, yeah, it's it has nothing to do with uh, future prospects or fundamentals or anything else. It could be a large institutional move that's made, um, I'm exaggerating here, but simply because the boss has a bad day or decides he's going a different direction and he happens to have, I mean, I think in the Vanguard example, you're saying they have... Uh, five billion dollars worth of stock if they turn that to three billion for one reason or another that's probably going to show up in the price and that nothing really changed other than that one institution with the large amount of funds there um 
It's crazy stuff. I'd, I'd like to dig into that and see if I can figure out what's going on. Cause that just seems really high, man. Yeah. Pretty high. You know, I think that's it for today. So shorter episode today, guys, but um, appreciate you being with us again. Um, we may put together some clips of a year in review in the near future. So if you have any of your favorite episodes that you want to hear run back, let us know. Um, hit us up on Twitter at Skippy Dougals. Um, Gmail, skippydougals at gmail.com. Uh, if you want to hear our massive portfolio breakdown that's going to come out next week for premium subscribers, you can go to skippydougals.supercast.com and get the I Roll with Skippy and Dougals membership. Um, we're excited about that. What, what did I miss, Dougals? I think that's it. Perfect. Thanks, guys. Thank you.